Everyone, uh, without further ado, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. We are super lucky on episode 84 to be speaking with Greg McIntyre all about vision systems. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I appreciate the invite. It should be fun. No, Thank you so perfect. much for, for, for joining us, Greg, today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I uh, just want to mention off stream, we talked quite extensively about vision systems. I have a lot of questions for you, but before we <laughs> before we get into those, could you give us a little bit more about your background? How did you get started and what are you doing today? Yeah, I'm sure. Happy to. Uh, again, happy to be here, guys. That should be fun. Um, basically, if you go all the way back to like 1999, coming out of that college years and what are we going to do? I uh, found my way into the Keyens Corporation, which uh, is kind of a good starting point for a lot of us out there in industrial sales and just tech in general. And um, they're a great proponent for just doing the right thing in terms of process, how you approach sales and how you. So it gave me some great background. But as an inside applications engineer, what I fell in love with was just the camera systems. It just became one of those things I wanted to invest more and more time in and learn in that back room which when you're an applications engineer, that's all you get to do really is play with the hardware and solve people's problems. And so it kind of became addicting, to be honest, to where it was just something that I wanted to do on a daily basis and then got the opportunity to sell that uh, with Keyens. And I was there about seven years uh, in all, uh, ended up being one of their area product sales managers for LA, running a crew and just having a good time with it. And that was the introduction to me and Machine Vision. I was going on a daily basis to industrial customers and territories listening to the problems and trying to create solutions with them. And sometimes it was with Keen's hardware. Sometimes it wasn't. It was just the, the process of solving problems with really high tech stuff uh, was engaging. Um, past the Keen's years, I uh, worked for a, a Cognex DVT distributor uh, for a couple of years as one of their outside sales guys um, before honestly getting fired by them because they wanted to pivot and change direction. But I had created some really good lasting relationships with customers and they kept calling me in, even though I was sitting at home looking for work, they wanted me to come in and help them. So I basically started H&J Solutions from that moment on and hung the shingle, worked out of the house. My garage was my lab, uh, my meeting space. And I just, uh, you know, for that first year, just gutted it out every hour of every day doing something for somebody and turned that into a 14 year, uh, you know, self ownership on that kind of uh, business level. And that was a fun ride. Uh, I named it H&J because this is all about family, all about what we do outside of work. And that's my kids' names, Hannah and Jake. So this has always just been that all-in type of pursuit. And camera systems, again, just because I looked to do it, I would show everybody what a camera can do. I was acquiring hardware through you know any source I could, lights, lenses, cameras, just to be able to have a test environment that was adequate. So a customer would say, I have a production line with a conveyor and this kind of lighting. I could actually replicate that in my test lab or steel base for you know tool steel on a mold or whatever the case may be i invested in all that tech so that customers could be secure in my recommendations whatever that was going to be whether it was a custom solution something that was just going to be bolted as a retrofit to their lines um you know i would approach it that way it wasn't the guy in a white lab coat and a white desk and pristine lighting and saying yep there's your solution good luck go ahead because uh, I realized on the first day of owning my own company, there's nobody to turn around to and say, hey, that's your fault. It's actually mine. There's, there's no way to shirk any of that responsibility. So I just took it and ran with it and had a great time. So at the end of that 14 year run, um, I put in a year with elementary robotics and they were that was my first introduction to really deep learning camera systems. And it was really quite interesting to see what 
I never would have touched with a traditional machine vision system like a smart camera, the Kiensis and Cognexes. What deep learning took over was kind of really eye-opening, and uh, it was a lot of fun to pursue that. And um, about two months ago, I actually pulled up with, and it's not on my LinkedIn, I definitely am a little behind the curve on that one, uh, but United Robotics Group is where I am working now as their VP of solutions. And United Robotics is a startup here in the States. I was employee number two, but really we're uh, headquartered back in Germany. And uh, this is a really passionate group of people. Just uh, actually two weeks ago, we're in Austria doing kind of a kickoff with everybody and 30 of us in the same room from all these different countries and just getting to know each other. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what I'm doing with that company. Um, it's a slight departure from cameras actually, because that's what I've been focused on for so long. It was not as fun necessarily on a daily. So I needed to challenge myself with something new. So I'm on their industrial vertical and just supporting all the other verticals they have from hospitality and healthcare and lab automation. So I, whatever I do, I'm just all in. So that kind of sums up 20 years in a very small time span. No, absolutely. I really appreciate that, Greg. I, I think there's a lot of directions that we can certainly go from there. But I, I want to, you know, maybe take a step back and kind of understand a little bit more about the early years, right? So you've joined Kians. I'm curious to maybe understand how was the learning curve, right? Was there at the time maybe a program that allowed you to learn the technical aspects of vision? Did you have some knowledge of vision when you stepped into Kians? Was it, you know, like, was it as... I want to say like now it's become a little bit easier to learn and I, I'm not as familiar with Kians as I am with Cognex. I know that it certainly has changed. You know, at that time you had DVT, but even on the Cognex side, you had uh, spreadsheets and now it's become, you know, easy builder. So it's a little bit easier, I feel like, to jump in. But could you paint us a picture of how the learning curve was? And I guess like my follow-up question as you think about that answer is going to be, what would you recommend for engineers today that are trying to get into vision as well? Got it. The early days of Keynes, uh, they were still developing a lot of their processes. Uh, for them, the technical training involves flying back to New York and being put in front of their chief technical guy and just here's a pile of parts and here's a camera and see what you can do with it. It was quite literally uh, an open field for us to be able to try to solve problems before people come in and coach. Um, the majority of it, I would say, was just me in the lab with the equipment on a daily basis, just wanting to learn. So was, there was an innate inside of me, I have to use this product because it was just fun to do. I didn't previously have photography experience other than just taking pictures like we always do with our Polaroids way back in the day or, you know, a regular digital camera, but there wasn't anything other than just memorialization of an event. You know, you're at a family event and you want to take a picture and, and it's not today with the cell phones and the selfies and everybody's memorializing everything, which is a little over the top, but this was okay, I'm now taking the art of taking a picture and applying it to a solution. And I need to create this image such that the machine vision system can actually understand the difference between a good part and a bad part. So it became that pursuit that how can I make this happen? Do, am I changing a light? Am I changing a lens? Am I changing the orientation of the camera to the part? Am I, there's so many ways that you can solve these problems. It just, again, I like solving problems and this was giving me the ability to do it professionally and you know show other people and actually fix things that weren't fixable before so um uh, i wish i could say more to it there was more structure but back in those days it was there wasn't um it was just really however we wanted to approach it as far as what people can do to learn this kind of stuff honestly 
I tell everybody just jump in and start using it. Don't be afraid to break it. I, every time I would train a customer back in the day, that was their biggest fear is, you know, getting in there and making mistakes. And if we lead with the, I'm going to make a mistake mindset, then we never really get in there and learn what it can do. I had the benefit of always having an offline piece of programming equipment so that I could use something, a copy of a program and mess with it without making mistakes on the actual production line. Cause the last place you want to be doing this stuff uh, is on an active production line while things are in process and you make one change and all of a sudden you're kicking off every bottle at, you know, five bottles a second, it gets ugly very fast. And so you got to do these things in an offline capacity, which usually means your employer needs to buy a demo set or, you know, you can eBay some cheap stuff and just have, a brick off to the side on a board like your backdrop there with all the you know electronics you need some a test kit to be able to just peruse what happens when i use this light or what happens if i unfocus the lens a little bit to get rid of some of that surface stubble it's just a matter of going in there and trying it and then honestly raising your hand when you get stuck and knowing who to call obviously it makes a big difference i've um, employed people and we will make them nameless for the moment but they would hit their head against the same spot in the wall all the time and then finally give up. And the answer was so simple, but it's like some people need that. Let's call it the headache to be able to kind of persevere. And I did it, you know, it's a, it's a nice little internal boost, but sometimes you just need to give it up and ask a question. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that process is like very interesting. I think a lot of people certainly struggle maybe to wrap their heads around the aspect that it requires part art, Hard science, right? And there's just so many, I want to say, like intricacies in the vision systems world that you would not realize until you actually experience it for yourself, right? And it could be something as small as even like a moving part, right? Like depending on how quickly you capture that image, but it could also be the lighting, right? Like ambient lighting. So maybe replicating that in a lab environment is going to be one thing, but then putting that on a production floor is a whole other beast in itself but in any case like i guess like let can we explore that whole concept of deploying a vision system right like and how do you maybe start thinking about an application and we'll get to maybe a more com concrete example as we continue the conversation but in general how do you start talking to a client who's maybe asking you for i'm trying to figure out if i can do let's say a quality check on a part that i'm um that i'm producing down the line sure yeah, the majority of the applications I've worked on historically have been quality control, like an inline quality check at, you know, obviously production speed. So you're right. The environment that you're dealing with with the customer is paramount where this solution is going to get placed, uh, how stable the target is. If it's on a conveyor, is it contained? Is it moving around? Uh, is it actually flat? Is, you know, there are a lot of conditions that you can't um go without seeing so my first objective with the customer once we get past the do they have a real need you know the whole business roi bit you know are they willing to invest do they understand how much it's going to be and you know in a rough sense and so once past those my first thing is to actually go to the production line itself and walk it with the people that use the line the operators themselves not necessarily the engineer or the management but understand what the people on the floor are using on a daily basis to currently solve their problem. If there is a solution, sometimes it's picking up an object, looking at it and putting it down. Sometimes it's just random guess or golly, Hey, I saw a problem, but understanding it from the production level. So that's where you get your light levels. Is there a skylight? Is there a bay door? Are there, you know, just trip hazards where something happens that is unexpected? 
Um, again, part stability. You know, am I going to need to track the part? Is the camera going to need to work a little bit harder because I need now 360 degree orientation uh, for a round object like a bottle and it's going to be moving forward and backward on the conveyor. So the less stable it is, the first thing I try to do is actually stabilize the target. Can we do anything to make it more contained to make the camera work less? Uh, and then work our way up to the application. Does the customer understand, and it oftentimes is no, what the real problem is? You know, if they have a defect that they want to get rid of. Do they understand how it was formed or where it came from so that we can put a vision system on the appropriate part of their production line? Um, it's a great American way of thinking, unfortunately, that you put one camera at the end of a 20-step manufacturing process and say, that one camera has got to find all my defects. And while that's a nice pipe dream, it, it rarely happens because there's so much that has happened to the part up until that point that you can't always see things. These things are occluded or, or missing. So I've always tried to push things further up the production line to get them at their point of you know, most new defect present now so that it doesn't get masked later. And you can also keep you know, parts from having any more value added production uh, you know, put on it. Um, so once we understand <coughs> excuse me, the, the target and its environment and the defects that you're looking for. Uh, yeah, I do tend to pull things back into a lab environment with as many test samples as possible, um, both good and bad, because you need to understand the difference and you need to see the way the camera and the light interact with both. Um, typically from a lab environment, I'll just produce a quick test report just saying, hey, look, here's the successes I had, here's the failures I had, here's my gray area, my question marks. And then I would try to bring that setup back to the customer site in a test rig and actually try it on the production line because you really don't get a sense of what's going to happen unless you see it in a dynamic sense. It's got to be running. Uh, it's one of the, the bigger common failures is to let's say you're using a keyant system, which requires a registered image. You got to take that golden part and then set all your programming around it. Well, people tend to put a static object in front of the camera, take their picture, set up all their tools and invest 20 hours in a program and then turn it on and start running. And the speed move, this, the part position is now different. It looks different under motion, whether it's pixel blur or something else. But so getting that in the actual environment, and this is all part of the overall scope of building whatever the solution is, whether it's a retrofit right there on the line or it's something that'll be built offsite. But once you get through that online test, you know, bring a trigger signal, you know, trigger sensor, whatever you need, all in there. Bogan arms are the best thing ever for these kind of quick setups. Um, then you kind of have your answer and you can actually produce that again, another report with the images that have been stored. Here's your actual inspection data and then actually build the solution and put it in there. So I, I try to get buy-in at a lot of different levels just because it, too many times assumptions get made on what's actually going to get found. And there's a slippery slope and everybody knows the, uh, the scope creep is, uh, is huge with machine vision because it becomes a, well, if you can find that, what about this? And what about this? And you just kind of start chasing your tail and you go really far away from what you started doing. And just because the camera catch, can catch something, I, it's not always recommended that you try. So That's what I was going to ask you next, right? Like, because in, in my mind and maybe having worked for very large multinationals. I have a distorted kind of view of how those projects take place. But do you usually yeah. have a clear list of like specs from a, a quality department, <clears throat> I'm assuming, that would tell you what they're looking for in those projects? Or is it a lot more like of a conversation and trying to figure out what you can give them, right? Because there's a lot, even, you know, something as simple as, uh, let's say like a distance measurement, right? You have a jar that's, I don't know, like higher or lower or any object that's like, shorter or, or taller just to illustrate a point 
And obviously, yeah. your vision system is not going to be able to give a precision to, let's say, a micron, but it could be able to do it to like a millimeter. But do they give you those specs, right? Like, do they provide you with very specific things that you need to do, or it's more of a discussion with them, kind of what's possible, and you go back and forth? It, I would say it depends. It's going to be a, a famous answer of mine uh, time and time again, because it honestly depends on the level of buy-in from the customer sitting across from me. If they are just handed a project and have to solve it because their boss told them to, you're going to get very minimal information. And there's a lot of investigation that I have to go through in order to write down clear specifics. Because again, that scope creep is what will take over later because there was assumptions on what it could and couldn't do. So machine vision, when you approach a solution, you kind of have that end game in mind of here's the defect I need to find. And therefore, here's the tools I need to apply to that. And therefore, here's the lighting I need to use in order to get that image to get that result. So it's a linear process, but it's got to start with what we need to find and reject. And then there's always the gray area of how many false rejects can we have? You know, good pieces that were rejected because they're borderline cases versus the false acceptance where an actually bad product got through. But it's a gray area. Some, you know, you put 10 people in a room, 10 quality people in a room, you have them look at the same part and you're going to get 11 different answers because somebody's going to change their mind. So there's always a gray area and cameras don't get rid of that. They're just less subjective. They take an objective look, they give you an answer. And typically that answer stays the same provided all the incoming information, the light and the target and the position didn't change. You're pretty much going to get the same result. So does a customer know what they need? No. From a detailed perspective, like a tappy chart, this size dot is okay. This size dot is not. It's a little more rare to find that, but they have examples of we don't want to see this or we do want to see this. And then you just kind of go and you start just testing. And if there's too many rejects in the bin, you kind of go back and you figure out where you could go back and make an adjustment. So it's, it's uh, iterative in a lot of ways. Dave, what are your thoughts? What to get you in the conversation as well? Well, well, thank you, but I, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate that. I'm actually surprised I get to ask Greg a question only 20 minutes into this. Uh, I, I thought we would have gone a whole 65 minutes before I'm elbowing him out of the way, but no. I, I think a, b- a bunch of these are are really uh, really great kind of points. I will throw out to everyone that Vlad is the the quality person who would think that 100% of bad parts must be rejected. And zero percent of good parts could possibly be rejected. I, I think he uh, he has made the comment himself that he is the person who will die on the plant floor in order to uh, in order to try to get that work. And and at that point, Greg, I told Vlad, Vlad, I'm happy you didn't decide to become a machine vision um, expert and devote your entire career to that. Otherwise, you might still be at the first plant twenty years uh, twenty years later. Uh, but no, I, I think you, you've given a bunch of really good examples, Greg. Um, I guess. I guess in the world of no job is typical, can you walk us through maybe an interesting job that you've done? Maybe it was a bunch of years ago. Maybe it was close to kind of tie all of these these parts and pieces um, that, that you've given us together. Um, yeah. Um, go back to the early days because those were the fun ones, uh, working out of the house in the garage. Um, there was a project in Utah uh, with U.S. Synthetic, and what they make are the – um, drilling heads, the, bra- the diamond-tipped brazed heads that go onto the ends of drills to go for our gas, natural gas, oils, whatever is in the ground. Um, and these compressed diamond tips needed to be inspected for fractures because um, it's, a, it's a diamond material. They have to polish it and grind it with diamond. It's a very laborious process uh, to make these things one at a time. 
And in the early days, again, out of the house, I was kind of thrown this one by one of the key and sales guys who was like, I sold them a bunch of equipment. They don't know what to do. Help. And I just got that as the intro to this. So a gentleman working out there, Christian Castro is a great host. I basically packed up every scrap of gear that I had in the Pelican case, threw it at the back of the car and drove to Utah and spent four days with this box of Keyant stuff and the stuff that I brought and all of their parts just to work up a, is this even a credible solution? Can we get something out of this? Uh, and, you know, that whole spaghetti against the wall euphemism, you know, okay, we have, we have things that stick. So what evolved from that was great proof of concept. We know we can do it. Now what? So the project returned with me home to then scale up. A, what do we need to build in order to be able to inspect this? So it switched into complete R&D and prototyping from a perspective of how to hold this small part such that I can see the chamfers and the bevels that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. That was about a month, month and a half long process and came up with the overall concept. And because again, early days, no real resources, customer ended up designing and building the structure that would house that. And then we were able to produce that first working unit from that particular piece. So going from the unknown, whether it works, uh, bringing it back, coming up with a solution on a temporary test bed, engineering that so that it was actually working out there in the field and ultimately built four of these inspection systems um, that were now a lot more understood. And I was able to employ my first mechanical engineer so we could actually do our own design work and, and fabrication. Um, so that, that was probably one of the more fun ones. There's not a whole lot of detail in between because it's uh, kind of one of those proprietary parts, but it was a whole lot of fun. Um, I just about went through every possible light and lens configuration I could think of because it's this black composite diamond material. It looks different on every light. Every part looked a little different. I went so far hmm. as trying wedding agents around the edges to try to control lighting and uh, macro lenses to try to enhance what I was looking for. Ended up with six different lights and two different cameras and reflections versus diffuse it was uh it was quite a fun little project uh, i did enjoy that one interesting so uh, on on projects such as that is is that kind of a typical workflow for more in-depth vision systems of you you go out you kind of do the the initial understanding of what the location looks like probably get a bunch of product in your hand and then go back to the shop in order to build what what that's going to look like yeah, under non-typical everything, yes, that is a very typical path. Um, one of the things I would do, because again, customers aren't aware of whether something is pursuable or not, is this even worth going after? Uh, a lot of times I would offer a consulting package just to, hey, let me show up on your front door, just pay for the travel in my day, and we'll come up with a solution. Whether you buy that solution from me or not is irrelevant. Um, you know, let's just get to the bottom of whether or not this is even possible. And so that would give me that firsthand look and get me to ask the questions I needed and uh, get my eyes on the actual parts. And then, yeah, it all comes back to the shop as much as possible because I can do more damage there than anywhere else because all of my tools, all of my lenses and lights and cameras, Bogan arms, you know, I can go into this is a 4,000 square foot facility. I've kind of built my own CNC mills and, you know, I've got a laser table so I can cut patterns into things. And so I can quickly prototype throw something on a 3D printer as a nest or as a holder and do a lot of things with duct tape and bailing wire too, if I really have to. It's just whatever it took to come up with a solution. And then how do we then industrialize that is the way I like to phrase it because it can't survive in the little bird's nest that I created here. So now again, engineering becomes involved and physical structure needs to be created. 
And then a lot of times, yeah, we'll build or outsource if it's going to be you know something incredibly time consuming or complex, uh, and then bring that back to the customer site. No, no, very interesting. I, I I like that because I guess when I think of a vision system, I I guess first and foremost, I think of a, hey, we've got one vision system. I'm probably ordering it off of a part number. Maybe it's for inspection or maybe it's for one kind of particular thing. And and as you're describing it, there are, you know, it might be half a dozen lights and a couple of cameras and, and all of these other things. I think that the, the larger projects are absolutely, as, as you described, kind of where the art and science, um, the art and science intersect. I do want to, I do want to talk Briefly, so, so you mentioned different cameras, different lenses, different lights. Two-part yeah. question, I guess, guess first is broadly, how important are these? And then second is how have these options and everyone's understanding changed in the last 15 years or 20 years of your experience with these systems? Sure. Um, you know, lighting and lensing make the image. Uh, the camera is just taking a picture and it, you know, back in the day, it was, it doesn't really matter whose camera is taking the picture, but if you can't see it, you can't see your defect or you can't differentiate between good and bad, you can't get started. So lighting and lensing are really everything about a machine vision system. Um, the harder you work to create the proper image, the less work the actual vision system has to do. So sometimes you can use that to scale down your expense and complexity of the vision system. You don't need as many filters. You don't need to run as many pre-processing tools. You can just go right after it with some simple algorithms because you did a little bit more work with the light and it's more consistent. You know, once you get past that lighting and lensing aspect and it's still challenging, okay, now the power of the camera system needs to come into play and you know each one is gonna have its little specialty based on, you know, is it a pattern matching tool and you need that PatMax robust tool to find things uh, in space versus, you know, just a simple pattern tool. That's just, you know, fine. Cause there's no obstructions. Um, as far as changes in the last 15 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, they just constantly evolve. It's, it's, um, I'll call it a, an incestuous little industry with that, you know, the lighting industry itself, just because mm -hmm. there's so many players that come from the same origins and then start up another company and produce something similar. Okay. Um, but I've tried making my own lights. And to be honest, I regretted every minute of that after I was done. I, <laughs> you realize how much goes into making an industrial light that works mm -hmm. the same way. And, you know, all the LEDs are binned so that they're the same intensity and, and the same range within a couple of nanometers. You know, there's just, there's a lot that goes into it that uh, I no longer second guess because I did try. But um, the shape of lights, the flexibility of lights and mm -hmm. the understanding of, optics is always being pursued. There's, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of the person that came before you and they've just learned so much. So I've enjoyed using a lot of different lights that I couldn't use 15 years ago from companies that just suddenly show up and it's like, Hey, here's something that we offer that nobody else has. And um, it, it's been a lot of fun. So the flat dome lights that have come out, the, you know, CCS America did the completely transparent flat dome. So you can see right through it, just there's gridded dots in the way. Um, dark field lighting, just, you know, so you can see from the sides, um, just you know, even the smart vision lights, that's probably the lighting company I've used the most just because I can have lights set off at a distance and they're incredibly powerful. They've got potentiometers built in. You can, you know, change the lighting intensity remotely, uh, with a zero to 10 volt signal. There's just a lot of adaptability to that. I don't like getting lights right next to my object because there's usually a lot of things happening. I want mm -hmm. you know, 
my ultimate goal, and everybody laughs when I say it, I want to put cameras on the ceiling. I don't want them anywhere near what I'm inspecting just because my perspectives improve and nobody's going to hit their head on it or accidentally brush it when they're cleaning a machine. So the ability to bring my optics and my lighting further back, but maintaining that intensity is great. And I think one of the bigger advances they've had recently is just this, the overdrive, being able to produce even more light for short bursts of time. Uh, and within the last year, I've used the smart vision lights that have both the standard drive and the overdrive built into the same package. So all of these things. What is that feature? Just kind of, Sorry to interrupt. What, what is that, the overdrive? Just curious. Over, overdrive is just uh, pushing an LED far beyond its normal capacity. You just have okay. a limited time frame in which to have it on. So you have to have it in a burst or a, a strobe mode. And you usually can, the duty cycles, you know, maybe 50 milliseconds at the most. You know, sometimes it's single digits. But it's just an incredible burst of light out of that LED in order to stop motion. You got high speed moving objects. Uh, one of the recent ones was you know looking at like granola feeding off of conveyors or food products feeding off of conveyors. And it's unstable. It's kind of dusty and things are in motion. But yet you want to have some crisp understanding of the details of the image. You really need to start hitting it with a lot of light and taking faster pictures. So in the past, you had to go into the application knowing which light you needed. And it's at least a thousand dollar investment to get one food grade ready stainless one foot wide light. You know, again, hats off to them for producing these things, but you had to know what you needed. If you went in with a standard light and you needed overdrive, you're just you're done. There's nowhere else to go. But they've started combining that tech where the circuitry you just you instead of your zero volt connection going to 24 volts, you have your comm going to zero, and that internally flips a switch, and now you've got overdrive and the ability to put four times the amount of light on your target in the same light package. So I, I love those combinations just because now I can go in with one tool and know that I can step up. I always start normal and I can always step it up from there. But, uh, you know, just it always depends if you're in an environment where people are walking around, if there's a line of sight to the cameras and the lights, the strobe lighting becomes a little bit more of a conversation because you can really start messing people up. Uh, if there's any sort of seizure possibility. And I've actually had that happen with customers. And so we've had to learn, you know, if you're going to strobe, you got to shroud. So just a lesson learned. Makes sense. Uh, we have a good question from uh, Dante in the comments. And I was hoping we would segue into this a little bit later, but maybe that's a, a good thing that he asked that question. So the question <laughs> is, what is your opinion on AI and cameras? Uh, the ones from Cognex, would you recommend it? Have you ever worked with one? Uh, yeah, it's a wide open landscape right now. So AI is, a, is an evolving field uh, in a lot of ways. So when Cognex bought Viti that many years ago, it was a standalone product. It was PC based. Uh, I did buy the license. I did try to use it and I did find myself incredibly overwhelmed and having flushed that $8,000 down the drain, never actually deployed a Viti solution. But it was just beyond my grasp because I was used to straight smart vision systems and, and whatnot. So um, there's an inflection between the AI or deep learning and, you know, just the basic understanding AI continues to learn and make changes and adapt. Whereas to me, deep learning is a fixed set of taught images and the understanding of what is good and what is bad doesn't change once you've done your inference models and you, you actually have deployed it. Um, but AI is out there. I just visited a couple of uh, AI camera companies in Germany, and I'm really liking where they're going. Uh, where I've seen them mostly deployed right now has to do with like 3D bin picking, 
where you got the stereo objectives and you're looking at objects to pick and maybe you haven't trained it, but you still want to pick whatever the random objects happen to be. So that stereo vision combined with, uh, you know, understanding the Z heights and shapes of objects and then applying that AI over the top to be able to sort out all that data. Um, they're quite powerful. Um, like I said, when my eyes were opened a year ago with what was happening with deep learning, um, I'm really starting to pursue those now actively just because they are quite game changing. So AI is definitely something to keep an eye on. Oh, that's that's very interesting. And I guess to, to expand on that a little bit more, deep learning, as I understand it, you would have, let's say, a set of images, right? So again, I, I don't know the exact number, but let's say a thousand different images and you could label them like here's a good one, here's a bad one as a human. And then that would create you a model that then the vision system would apply based on kind of like that data set. It would create its own model and apply to like a live line. Is that a correct? Uh, I guess maybe I'm oversimplifying it a little bit. Not really. I mean, its intention is to be simple. Um, so yeah, if we use elementary as that example, there's software, you take a bunch of pictures, you know, just the standard imaging. So my job was to make sure the lighting and lensing, and hey, here's your images. And then you do the data acquisition, as many images as you can find that represent good and bad, because you, you need that full range. And with their system, the deep learning is the entire image is used in the process of learning. It's not just a regionalized area like the cognitivity tool you can say in this area or you know highlight some you know some things their entire image is being used and so you're just exactly labeling this one is good this one is bad and it's a matter of having enough of the data set to be able to create and that differential where is the line between zero and one where do i want to call my good or my bad and the broader the differences between what's good and what's bad the easier it is and the fewer number of images you need to use, the more random or variable, then you need to really step it up. So maybe you only need 10 images of good and four of bad for the first one. I've had a project where it needed over 20,000 total images in order to be able to really cut through and get what they were looking for. And that takes a lot of time. You know, if you think about manually labeling, you know, how often do we make a mistake? You know, human beings, what is it, two, two-ish percent maybe? but one wrong label on one image out of 10,000 and that model is now going to derail a little bit because its understanding of what is actually good and bad is now going to shift. So it requires careful work. Um, again, the broadly scoped, this is obviously bad and obviously good. There is computer software out there that can just assort those for you and kind of do a predictive labeling and you just need to agree to it. Um, you know, that's a whole lot better than spending eight hours a day going through images and going blind. Because once it's honestly an image and it's a 2D image in front of you on a screen, sometimes it really is hard to tell what's good and bad because we have to evaluate the image without having the part in front of us. And having the part in front of us is what makes it easy to decide what's good and bad. So it's it's a tough role. I, I've, I've pitied a lot of customers who had to put a lot of time into labeling the images um, just because I don't have the patience to do it. I can do it for the first day just to show them how to do it. And it's like, no, I, I can't. I'll lose myself. I guess I'm, I'm curious on that point, Greg. You know, it, do you see the dynamic changing, right? So I want to say the more traditional way, at least like the way I've seen projects executed is you deploy a vision system and then there's going to be at least, let's say, a period of a couple of weeks where you see how it performs. And then usually you bring in that like vision expert back to the site he then reassesses kind of the solution. Obviously, you have a conversation with the plant people and they explain, well, like maybe it's it's passing too many bad parts or it's failing too many good parts and they make an adjustment, let's say, to the tools, right? So again, what I'm familiar with is the like the insight tools and they would kind of shift the tool to 
better align with some of the images that were captured on a hard drive versus, you know, this kind of like deep, deep learning slash, you know, maybe self-learning uh, aspect where maybe the customer can tag images and they have, you know, after two weeks, a million images to tag. And, you know, it's a very tedious process for them. Do you see that dynamic like changing? Do you see it becoming like a blend of the two? Does it depend on the application? Like, I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts on, on, on where that's going. Sure. That famous, it depends answer, right? So yeah, yeah. it does depend on the complexity of the application. And I will say it also highly depends on how well the inspection system was thought out from beginning to end. Because when you design a system, it's got to be about solving the problem, but it's also got to be about the end user's ability to own the solution once you're done. So as an integrator, I don't want to own the solution forever. I want to be able to install it and train them, show them how it works, and then get out. You know, if there's a, a need to come back in for preventative maintenance cycles, you know, that's okay, fine, no problem. If they don't have the expertise, then I need to build it so simple that, you know, it can be operated and I come in once every three months or so. Um, it's it honestly, it just depends that that far reaching customer has got to take ownership if they're really going to be successful at it. Um, as far as how much time to budget for it and whatnot, I've had customers. Yeah. After a couple of weeks, it's very iterative. You, you know, 10, hundred thousand, 10,000 is kind of the way I look at it or your first 10 parts or the, the root level program. Then you run a hundred parts. Is it still validating the way you want? Make some changes a thousand parts in, you're going to start seeing a wider variation set. And those usually happen within the first couple of days of the install. Um, because once the system is installed, that's when you can take the official pictures and that's when you can kind of start the official programming. Um, usually by the end of the first week, you're getting up to that, you know, thousand mark of parts run in, in succession and being able to say, okay, we're at about a 95% understood threshold. And since there's not indefinite amount of time available on a production line to create, you know, random inspections and tie up the line, they need to make their money. There's a lot of pressure put on getting a solution in, getting it in fast and turning it on and making it work. The faster you turn it on and rely on that, usually you're going to have the higher reject rate because you're going to try to err on the side of caution. Like I'd rather throw away 10 parts out of a thousand than oops on that 11th one, you know? So, um, usually after those few weeks, your backing tolerance is off. It's a matter of, it's now a little bit more understood. The camera is now kind of worn in. They understand the imaging that's going on. They understand it's more capable or less capable than they thought. And yes, it's time to make adjustments a week in, two weeks in. Um, that's why having a, a local integrator is obviously helpful. Somebody who knows what they're doing because having to fly cross country to be able to support things uh, gets a little expensive and time consuming for everybody involved. Um, and so what I appreciated when a company does have an offline programming suite, you know, Keynes with their XG system or, you know, Cognix obviously with their, uh, everybody actually has one now. So it's not just one specific brand, but being able to have the customer acquire those images, maybe shift them over to me through an Amazon S3 and I can look at them at my shop in real time, see what's going on. Or in the later machines that we were producing, uh, I would actually deploy a computer along with the system and run the web service through that. So I can actually tap into that computer, uh, remotely access it and see what's happening on the production line in real time and, and look at images. Yeah. So remote service of vision systems is actually where the, the current trend is so that your integrator isn't that far away from the production line and can respond a lot sooner. No, absolutely. I think that makes sense. Dave, any thoughts, comments? I know we have a few more questions maybe in the comments that we want to throw at Greg as well. 
No, absolutely. Again, I think all of these uh, these items are, are great, Greg. Um, I, I guess maybe for everyone listening who isn't a, a machine vision expert, right? You, you gave some some really good examples, especially with lighting, as to where to start. But if you've got someone who's coming to to either begin to learn about machine vision, or perhaps you've worked on a couple of simple applications. Um, what are your suggestions, either areas to start or, or anything along those lines? Um, yeah, I guess it goes back to the early days. If they have access to a camera already, then start using it. But that's not what you're asking. This is more from the very base level. I'm just interested in it. Um, there is, I'm sure I, it's not something I've looked up personally, but there's a lot of information on the internet these days, so I hear. So uh, looking at um, the lighting vendors themselves, uh, even going to the camera manufacturers like the Keyens or Cognex or Banner or Omron or Matrox, pick your flavor, pick your color, really. But they are all kind of a self-supporting industry because you can't really use a camera without having the light and you can't use a light really without having the lens for the camera. So mm -hmm. they're all interrelated enough. So where you can go on, for example, Edmund Optics, and learn about what's happening with their lenses and why they're a little bit special and their tech spec silver series is actually pretty cool and heavy and expensive. Um, it'll just start leading you down that rabbit hole of information. So smart vision lights or advanced illumination or CCS, you know, if you just do the Google search of machine vision lights, of course, their paid for ads are going to be the ones that pop up first because they have an industry dominance. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And on those web pages is a amazing amount of information for light shape, intensity, purpose, and not cost, of course, that comes down to sales. But if you're just in that investigation stage, even Keyence in the past has had um, kind of almost like a training exercise. You can go through different manuals and download different brochures that walk you through uh, kind of a step-by-step. -step, here's why this light gets used. Here's why this light gets used. And so they'll give you the shape, they'll give you example targets. And it's all visual so that we can look at it, look at the picture and look at a normal image versus the one using this specialized light. And okay, I see the difference there. And so you can start getting that mental picture of what it might take to solve a problem when you do run across one. So it's, it's all out there. The manufacturers themselves are really good about sharing that information these days. Interesting. Okay, I guess as kind of a, a, a bit of a follow-up to uh, to that, Greg, I uh, wh where do you... Where do the needs typically come from, right? So, so you've talked about at least a handful of really cool applications. Are you out there going as like the machine vision, as the, the camera guru, going to talk to manufacturing industrial companies saying, hey, we could do this with vision? Uh, do, are there people who are coming to like a Keons, Cognex, something like that saying, hey, I have this problem and their application engineers are kind of help, helping to, to discover what that looks like. And then maybe it goes to a person like you. Are our end users calling you saying, Greg, we, we have this problem. I hope you have a camera that can solve it. Uh, how do, what does, what does that process typically look like um, when someone has a need and a machine vision camera can solve it? Got it. Um, that famous answer of it depends comes up again, just because as a small business owner in those days, I got most of the business from the sales guys that were solving problems with their tools, but couldn't do anything to actually engage a full solution. It was just, okay. they had their puzzle and being familiar with both Keyens and Cognix and they had more of the dominance in the industry in terms of the smart cameras. Um, that was kind of a lead in and the yeah. expertise that I brought with that is usually what maintained that customer to use us. It was, there was a lot of no bids or there was a lot of, 
sorry, not no bids, but single bids. You know, I'm going in, here's what I can do. I can solve it. I can use the tools that they're recommending or we need to make some changes. Um, what I learned not to do is just accept a project based on what the sales guy said, because there's a lot of holes in those kind of proposals because it's only focused on the one hardware kind of package they can provide. Um, once a relationship with a customer is had, they would be calling me directly trying to solve problems. It no longer needs to involve, let's say, the sales guy that produced the lead originally. Uh, maybe their equipment isn't sufficient and I need to use somebody else's. But uh, the relationship with the customer directly drives, um, hey, I have another project. It's going you know, horizontal within the company, solving one problem. Oh, hey, the guy in the next cubicle, here's what you just did. Hey, I've got a problem too. So there's a lot of sideways growth within the customers. Uh, and as a little marketing ploy, maybe I had made my own business cards out of anodized aluminum. Mm -hmm. And so it's, an, you know, when you hand them out, they're memorable. And so people were actually remembering getting the card and wanting to call me and knowing they had a camera application. Um, so, and then again, just because of employing some of the best people out there and working with a lot of the best people out there, you just get to know who has needs. And yeah, there are some proactive calls and uh, going out there producing a sales pitch of here's what we can do. But those from a business perspective are, don't yield nearly as much just because you're hoping to find a solution or hoping to find a problem. Um, but just enumerating what you can do doesn't really do much other than make them aware. So I did that more at the trade show level, just make sure people knew what we could do, build something fun and eye-catching. You know, we one trade show built a, a large dice shooter camera looking at what number popped up, 3D scanning over here, imaging over here, you know, just for the fun aspect of just using machine vision in awkward and fun ways to be able to talk about it. Um, but yeah, majority is just those people out there that are doing the daily work of selling the products, but can't actually do the full solution. Interesting. Interesting. And then I guess uh, I, I will let Vlad ask, ask some more questions. Uh, don't worry, Vlad. Uh, are, are there are there lots of groups out there that are deploying kind of full scale, full stack machine vision solutions similar to, uh, to what you're doing, Greg? Or is it is it a very small, close knit group of people who can deploy at the level of what you have been doing for the last 15 years? You know, um there it's a surprisingly small community when you boil it down to machine vision like you guys said you've been wanting to do a, a camera segment for a while but they're just finding somebody to fit that role um there are notable notable ones that are out there that focus on machine vision well the problem usually is that an assembly system is being made by an integrator yep and they're very blanket you know umbrella types which is will handle all this technology but vision is rather a specialty and you know, robotics is a specialty. And so it's hard to find an integrator with a specialty in camera systems. And what I had done was I made the camera system or the vision system, the focal point of whatever I did, it had to represent at least 51% of the entire project mm -hmm. in order for me to keep it under my wheelhouse. If it was gonna be more mechanical motion and the camera was just going to do some final inspections, I would much rather find a partner that can be better at the mechanical portion. And then I come in and do the programming and vision uh, sign off. So um, yeah, while it is a small community, it really depends on what the main focus is. I, at, uh, at H and J I tapped out building dual armed robotic cells, picking up cable set top boxes, looking for scratches and defects and missing feet at these refurbishing houses. And, you know, that, was probably a million dollars for the total business. And that was incredibly overwhelming for a small business like what I was trying to put down. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, 
2020 hindsight, probably should have found a partner that could help me with the majority of it and then just gone in and solved the vision portion itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a great learning curve. I got to say, we, we learned a lot. It's like you either earn money or you learn. I learned a lot on that one. Let me tell you. Greg, we have a, a question from Christopher uh, as a follow-up to Dante's earlier question. I, I guess we've weird off um, in, in a different direction a little bit, but maybe to bring us back, he's asking, what are your thoughts on the AI vision sensors from Kians and Cognex? He says, I have seen a trend for really large field of view applications deploying a number of these quote-unquote all-in-one solutions versus a single high-resolution, higher-power toolset models. That's can specifically since more Non-control staff can understand how to use them. What, what are your thoughts on, on on those, if any? You know, honestly, I, I'm not sure I've seen the latest and greatest coming out of those guys. Um, so I'm not sure I'd, I'd have an opinion on that one yet. It's when they showed off, like Kian showed off the AI version of what they were going to offer. It was still in more of an R&D phase. And I'm not sure anybody came around to show me the, the rest of it. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that one. Okay. Perfect. Uh, as I mentioned to Christopher, maybe reach out to Greg directly and you guys can have a yeah. conversation off stream. Um, but no, I, I guess maybe to segue us into some like innovations in vision systems, I'm curious to hear maybe what are you seeing? Where do you see the industry going? Are there any like interesting and kind of maybe surprising applications? I've, uh, I guess maybe through to throw in one of my own that I've seen a lot of trade shows, but never seen live. It's like the 3D sensors that, right, that allow you to kind of have that depth vision of a part that's rolling on a conveyor like i'm curious if you have any other uh, i guess interesting things that are coming out or have been released sure um yeah i mean I'm, i am always keep kind of keeping an eye on and uh, trade shows and, and visiting like i mentioned the uh, going with the stereo cameras uh, ai driven out in germany um where i'm finding a lot of it that's been focused has been more the bin picking trying to sort random objects or your your amazons or your trying to make sure you're handling the widest variety of objects possible with a single robotic arm. So a lot of this is being about putting robots into a smarter category so that they can grip and handle a variety of parts. So those stereo optic type cameras, um, being able to create that three-dimensional image and understand what's underneath it, um, that is definitely what I've seen most of. And like you said, it's in trade shows all the time to be able to look at it. The ones that are being mounted to the arms so that they can go over and pick in a, in a delicate way, the ones that are mounted 10 feet off the, you know, the pallet or the conveyor to understand what's being picked from every angle. So if it's a box that's a little bit off kilter, the robot arm can make that adjustment and still manage to grip it properly without dropping it. Um, so as far as where it's going, I see much more of that. Um, one of the, you know, with United Robotics, especially, you know, we're looking at making robotics intelligent and the assistance to the person instead of just working by itself or working adjacent, but working with, uh, going towards lab automation, understanding the objects in front of it and being able to intelligently react to what's happening. So, um, that the more the AI is developed. Now, those are kind of proprietary behind the curtain. You don't really know what's happening. Um, so I got to kind of explore it company by company. Uh, and my first two are under the belt and I'm actually going to return to get some training and really understand what's happening so I know how to apply these tools. Um, but, you know, you can only get so much from marketing adverts from, uh, you know, this company having this tool or that tool. Uh, I need to kind of dig into the details a little bit. So to be determined on a lot of that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm personally really curious, you know, where the limit is going to be, right? Because I think there was a, a time where the race was towards 
sort of like making the smallest camera possible and all the tools are within the camera. But I think now that yeah. we have more and more computing power, we're seeing these, I want to say like a lot more complex applications, right? And I, I can only guess that, you know, for depth, they're using maybe multiple cameras within like a single unit yeah. to be able to figure that out. But ultimately it's all about the computing power and being able to process that data almost in real time, right? Because otherwise it becomes challenging to pick that part uh, of the of the bin. Yeah, uh, honestly, yeah, that inference time of uh, image to answer and go get it uh, obviously is important. But yeah, the um, processing power is increasing the ability to dissipate the heat within those smaller containers, you know, the, the housings for cameras. Uh, they're getting a lot more creative with that, I have noticed. Uh, when Cognex was able to put in the Vidi solution, which again was a massive graphics card in a tower, and you know, that was the only way to run it in its early days, uh, they got that down into their yellow brick. You know, yeah, the heat fins coming off of it are pretty massive, and uh, you know it's got to dispel that. But they managed to now bring it into a single smart camera housing, and it's just another one of their offerings as another industrial camera. So you get that IP67 or 69, depending upon if it's stainless. And so that is definitely still being pushed. I'd say where it's going is really going to be dependent upon where the camera guys can make the most money, right? What applications are most suited for AI in terms of making decisions um, and not have a person needing to get involved with that. Uh, a lot of the um, logistics, you know, palletizing, depalletizing, just think, you know, the intra logistics of things where there's a high mix uh, of parts, uh, maybe low volume, but high mix where you got to constantly switch between the hard code programming on that level is really difficult. Uh, a lot of the smart cameras are about high volume and low mix so that one setup gets you as far down the road as you possibly can. So I see AI taking over when it comes to being able to quickly switch between products without necessarily needing to have the hard coded programming. And, um, you know, I think bin picking is just that first one that was uh, applied just because it's everybody wants to go after that. I don't need to program it. Just go get the top part wherever it is. And uh, I've seen that be successful so far. So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. How, how, I guess, like, how simple are those programming tools, right? Like, do you see vision systems kind of follow the trend uh, that we're seeing a little bit with, like, Cobots, where the tools are almost, uh, what do you call them, like, the no-code, low-code solutions? Like, do you think it's, do you yeah. think that's going to be effective? I, I mean, I'm sure they're going to try and go that way, but uh, I'm curious, like, to hear your thoughts on how successful maybe that transformation will be versus it's going to be um, fairly intricate still. Yeah, well, it, I would say, again, it depends. Sorry, the answer keeps coming up. But um, it honestly, if you go down to what exactly is the customer trying to solve, there are things that uh, a deep learning tool can't do, whereas a hard-coded camera can and vice versa, right? So um, you've got like the key solution, which, or even the Cognix, you apply a tool to a region and it self-populates with more and more information these days. A lot, they're understanding, okay, we, we are going to deploy a caliper tool on this part and all those things kind of self-populate with a self-understanding of what the end result needs to be. So I think the no code option where my world has always been about smart cameras. And so the intelligence is in the toolbox. It's already on board. I've never really had to code in the background uh, in the DBT days where you could script in some custom solutions and whatnot that you don't really need to do that because the tools, the algorithms themselves are already still powerful. Uh, drop a tool in place and 90% of the adjustments are already done. And, only if you go into the advanced settings, 
do you get into an area where you can adjust edge thresholds or contrasts or how many pixels does it take to actually find an edge or be able to apply filters and whatnot. So I think the no coding has been there for a while when it comes to smart cameras. Uh, with the deep learning stuff, it's taken even a step further because you're just taking a picture and deciding good from bad as a label. That's zero code uh, and a lot less effort. So the time instead of hard-coded programming goes towards sorting images and uh, training it for that inference model. No, I think it's interesting. I, I, again, like I'm personally very curious to, to see those trends, and I certainly appreciate your perspective on that too. I think it's, it, it's only going to get better, uh, as I would like to hope. Uh, and it's only going to be hopefully easier or to some degree, like how to say, like the lo the learning barrier is going to become easier so that someone who has an interest and passion and vision can actually go in and find kind of like the right steps to get there. Right. Um, but yeah. And it's uh, the technology also keeps chasing down. So a very intelligent $2,000, you know, imaging sensor these days outperforms what was a expensive vision system 15 years ago. So the technology is getting smaller, easier to use. And, you know, like Keyence and Cognix both in their very small entry level camera systems, which is basic object detection, have AI built into those little things, you know? And so for a very little amount of money, you can get a lot of potency. Now as an integrator, I was never interested in those because a customer can handle that. It's not something that I need to do for them, but it was always amazing at what I was being shown, even with just lighting, getting rid of glare, getting rid of issues. And, you know, I was quite impressed with what those little cameras can do. So, yeah, it's, it's always going to keep racing down towards the bottom. How much can you get for how little and only if you need to you know, exceed those boundaries with something that is flagrantly wild? Do you need to kind of uncheck that? No, absolutely. And I, and I like I really like your example of bin picking inside of a bin that has, you know, like depth. Right. Because. Ultimately, this is a novel way to use vision yeah. systems. And to be honest with you, like 10 years ago when I was doing these applications, I would not have even thought of going to that level, right? At all the cameras were capable of doing mm -hmm. is giving you that very flat to the image and the part almost needed to be standstill or be captured at a standstill, right? And so now that, again, like as we discussed, like the processing power is better, people are finding novel ways to combine cameras but also other hardware right like it could be robotics that are examining these parts you can figure out and there's a lot of complexity i think you know in our conversation we're oversimplifying things but it's your grippers right it's the positioning of the robot it, it's how it gets there it's where the vision system is placed i'm assuming if it's placed on the arm then it's also taking images from different uh kind of like i guess like ways right like it can look at that bin in like a 360 view well, well 180 i guess like view so now, now you have to like stitch the 3D environment. And again, that's even like beyond my understanding of how that's done in the software, right? But that's all kind of like in the back end done by, uh, I'm assuming the developers for, for Cognix and Kins. But I think it's really fascinating and there's so many opportunities in that field. Yeah, it's, it's the multi-camera approach that gives them that three-dimensional depth and other camera companies are also involving, you know, let's say a, a light pattern or a light grid to be able to enhance edges of parts that are in the bin as well. So, yeah, stitching a bunch of images together from a single camera perspective using, you know, just random lines and patterns. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can slice it to be able to understand the geometry of the part underneath you. And part of that could also be the inclusion of a CAD model. You know, some of the softwares are smart enough to ingest a CAD model as part of its learning process. So it understands the geometry of the part it's looking for prior to it taking an image and evaluating what's there. 
but really? yeah, it doesn't really, you know, it's, um, again, one of the ones I was looking at in Germany, that was exactly what they were doing is understanding it from a CAD model perspective and then looking at it with patterned light and then, okay, I know what my grip points are because I decided those based on the CAD model, not on the actual part itself in the bin being imaged randomly. So it's that stereo optics is giving them a lot of power and it can be mounted to the arm. It's just in harm's way. And however long that arm is, is what your focal length is. Um, there's a preference sometimes to put the camera adjacent to the arm and just looking at the space that it's within, not on the arm itself, because it keeps it out of harm's way. And, uh, you know, to me, it's a little bit easier, but there is an argument for a small camera at the end of arm. Uh, what I'd love to see, and this is something uh, that's been talked about when I employed Courtney Fernandez as she was chasing her uh, master's with robotics, it's the idea of visual servoing, actually having the camera at the end, the end effector and being able to hone in on your target in real time, rather than what we're currently doing, which is taking a picture, then closing our eyes and then going at where it should be. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen and go wrong in that process. So the more we have those cameras near where we're going to interact with the world, I think it's going to get a lot more interesting, especially with liquid lenses or lenses that can change shape and constantly refocus. If you know where you are, you know, your distance to object, you can constantly refocus. And if it's AI, there's a whole different level of understanding. I don't need a fixed picture with a fixed piece of software to be able to say, this is what I'm looking for. So it, yeah, the race is on for sure. I guess yeah, some of those technologies probably go way over my head, but I've certainly reflected a lot about you know the projects that I worked on in, in machine vision that were a lot simpler than what you're describing and what we're hoping to see in the upcoming years. Dave, what are your thoughts? Maybe do you have some some potential customers who would be looking at such solutions? Kind of hit your the nail on. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. I think uh, Greg kind of hit the nail on the head. When he was talking about how powerful so many of these these new inexpensive small cameras are, right, and all of the different applications that, that we're able to uh, to do with this, um, as as I go in and I go and, and talk with customers, almost every single one of them could use vision for something, right? We could use vision for inspection. We could use vision for you know, a number of, of different opportunities. And so I hope with more technology coming out, I hope with prices kind of being pushed down because newer technology is coming out, it gives more groups the opportunity to play around with some of these cameras. And then after we fail, we'll all call Greg and be like, Greg, uh, I know there's a much better way to do it than it is uh, to, to take this, you know, $2,000 Cognex camera and, uh, and the, you know, the lights I stole off of Vlad's ceiling, uh, can you please come come show us the way? But I think I, I'm excited to, to go see these uh, many trade shows I go to. Uh, you see one to five different vision cameras, high speed, high speed inspection is kind of one of my favorite uh, different demos to, to, to go see, right? And uh, honestly, they're, they're all going so fast. You don't really know if they're inspecting it correctly or not, but, but it looks really good. And the ability, if we can go high speed inspect, uh, with a vision system, that that's a huge win because us as humans, I think Greg quoted 2%, um, we, we normally get wrong. Um, Greg, I, I know so many customers that would, uh, would kill if we only had 2% uh, visual inspection incorrect. I had a customer earlier this year that had to put re recall 
uh, six weeks or, or two months worth of all of the product they made because at some point they realized they were leaking. And I don't know how you go that long before realizing that literally all of your product was leaking because literally the, every run they had for the better part of two months, uh, there were issues. And uh, th- those are one of the ones that I had talked to at length of, hey, what if we have some sort of, you know, non-manual oh. inspection? So so something uh, something along these lines could have, I don't know, save like I don't know, five, 10, 15 million dollars, uh, so something, something along those lines. So I am excited for what the uh, the future looks like. Uh, but but speaking of future, right? So you kind of gave us the recap of the last 15 or 20 years or so kind of focused on on cameras. You you have a new venture that you kind of briefly discussed uh, what, what you were uh, what you were working on towards the beginning of the show. Would you like to, to talk a little bit more about what you guys are, are interested in doing? And I assume that that's going to incorporate some amount of uh, cameras and, and machine vision in there. Yeah, sure. Uh, United Robotics Group. Um, yeah, this has uh, been here now two months uh, with as VP of Solutions, which doesn't necessarily have an industry vertical associated with it because I'm pretty much supporting everybody right now. Uh, there was a global release of their first products uh, called Plato that's happened. Uh, it's happening in Paris this week, and we did a show in uh, Florida last week. But it's just a little restaurant service robot. It follows along with kind of that general nature that URG is pursuing, which is uh, it's a term called cobiotics. And it's, okay. it's trying to be an evolution of robot, that old industrial standard working by itself and cobot, which was that second wave coming through where it's a, a nice passive robot, maybe working adjacent to you, doing some of the dull work while you can focus on other things. Cobiotics is more of an extension of actually something that is working with you. And so that service industry robot or healthcare or hospitality was just that first wave. And this is you know, the, the overworked bartender or waiter or waitress, you know, as we all know and love in our restaurants these days, we're waiting a lot longer for things because there's fewer people showing up to some of those base level jobs. And so United Robotics Group is taking that and what can we do and how can we help our people maintain that person to person contact. So a little busing robot to be able to get your food over to the table a little bit sooner while they're dealing with some other issue or, you know, collecting dishes from the at the end of the day. Hey, go ahead and load this thing up just to try to help out the people that are stepping up and showing up and staying in their jobs. Um, what I'm going to be championing more of is the industrial automation end of this, which Mm -hmm. is uh, a lot less defined right now, but United Robotics Group is and the owner of nine different companies. They're all startups out of Germany. Uh, Rob Solutions being one of them, which they're working on a lab automation solution with a you know, universal robot arm and a mere autonomous mobile robot base. And we hmm. can convert that to do a lot of different things, not just lab automation, which is its primary function right now. I have one in the shop. I love playing with this thing. You know, it's going after, it's got one of those, um, what is it's um, one of those stereo optic cameras uh, on its front so that it can actually distinguish landmarks, do different uh, skills based on what it's being tasked to do, whether it's taking over that, uh, let's say the university, which has the grad student, which will work bleary eyed in the middle of the night, trying to do these projects for free. Uh, when you get into a professional lab, no longer do you have a resource like that. People don't want to aspire to have a job in the middle of the night doing capping and uncapping and prepping of tubes and getting things into um, the centrifuge. So what we have is this cell on a mobile base so it can go into your existing lab environment, be trained to use your centrifuge, be trained to pick up samples, decap them, prepare them for samples. So that whole five hour laborious process of getting these things ready can just happen. And then the person can come through and actually apply their talent at the results that, uh, you know, the HPLV 
that's what we're actually going after. And a lot of this stuff is time sensitive. You got to have it done within an hour, within a couple hours, because you're there, you're in a hospital environment, you need results. So I'm going to be taking that kind of technology and applying it to, again, industry. Maybe it's a collaborative palletizer that you can just wheel right in and start using because it's intelligent and there's a lot less interaction that's required, letting, again, people do what they need to do. So I'm, I'm very excited to work for these guys. It's a passionate bunch that with a week spent in Austria getting to know them. Uh, we had icebreaker day one in the rain in the hills uh, is very memorable. I, I love it because it showed the true grit that these people have. Like all of us are there wet and ragged and still going through the motions and still bonding. And that's going to last forever. So it's, uh, this is going to be a fun company to work with. No, that, I think that it is takes awesome. that, right? If I can make that comment, I think it really takes that because the complexity of these challenges are sometimes not necessarily underestimated. I think that's the right word, but maybe, you know, in our one hour conversation, it's hard to convey like the mechanical aspects, right? Like you have, like lenses that are entire like fields of their own. You have the automation yeah. segment, then you have image, like just rec like processing images is like an entire field that you can spend an entire lifetime on. So there's so much complexity that goes into this that I feel like you cannot not have people with passion that, you know, drive this innovation in the industry because of how complex it, it purely is. Yep, absolutely. From the CEO, Thomas Lincoln, how down, I mean, everybody was, just fully there, fully present and fully involved and committing themselves. And uh, so again, it's as this company is coming together here in the States um, underneath them, it's, you know, there's only six of us right now, but it's, uh, it, it's a group that's definitely going to go strong and grow fast. I believe we're looking to have about 22 to 23 people by this time next year, uh, as we ramp up all the different verticals. Uh, it is definitely, uh, a, you know, we're on a tear. We want to really grow this company and there's a lot of opportunity just because their approach is slightly different, more the ethical sales and trying to make sure that the robot is the right fit at the right place rather than replacing jobs. It's got to work with the people that are there and have the right mindset from the beginning. So um, that's kind of what drew me into this company is, is really the way that they're approaching. And part of our time out there in Austria was actually coming up with and working with some strategies and how to really define this. And uh, everybody's input was quite, quite interesting. And we're all on the same page. It's kind of the funniest part. When you put all those words, you know, that there's, what do we think? What do we want? What do we hope this is going to be? A lot of us are on that same page. No, I think that, that that's very exciting. And, and I think that that may answer kind of part of the question that I ask everyone, Greg, is is what do you predict that the future looks like, right? So I think that the future of these, these collaborative uh, bots that, that you guys are talking about in a variety of industry verticals. I think, I think that that's very exciting. That that is very futuristic. So perhaps I can ask you a little bit more uh, specifically on what what do you think the future of of machine vision, computer vision, uh, looks like uh, with within the industries? Um, as we were talking earlier, with everything continuing to get smaller and more efficient, less expensive. I think what you're going to find is applications that weren't solvable before because they were the ROI wasn't there. The investment okay. had to be too massive or it had to be too finite. Maybe it was it had to solve this one problem with this one product, but there wasn't enough money to invest in that. So what I see is a lot greater use of vision in solutions uh, just because, the, again, smaller, less expensive, more applicable. And with the AI that's going to be funneling behind, I believe they're going to be a lot more flexible at the same time. So if you separate from you know inspection, which is the quality control and the mm -hmm. analytics of how you're making your product, um, 
the abundance of information using, you know, again, elementary robotics as an example, you know, they are an entirely web-based solution. So all of the metrics go with it. Every inspection, every result, every image, they're all there available for the customer from that point forward. So the idea is to circular, go back, figure out where these defects are coming from, fix the problem, and then again, analyze. So AI being used on the data, coming in behind all the inspections to be able to sort out good from bad or identify some preventative maintenance issues. Maybe there's a common thread between these failures at this time of day or this, you know, we always blame third shift, right? They're always uh, asleep always or something shift. wrong, um, you know, or it's the second job and they're just really tired. But third shift always gets the blame regardless. But, you know, using AI on the data coming from the images is just that next wave of understanding uh, and being able to produce better parts or at least be more consistent about the parts that you are creating. Uh, from the other like intra logistics and going after the larger scale of just out there in industry, uh, I think AI again is gonna be a large driver behind it because it's not gonna be programming dependent and hard code dependent. So it can understand the environment, it can understand what you're after uh, and fill in the gaps and be a little bit more intuitive about it rather than I have to find three parts in this box in order to call this box good next. That's mm -hmm. very linear and process. I think we're going to start falling out of the process and it's just start opening up a lot more applications based on these developers. There's stellar developers that are out there right now. And so like I said, I'm just after doing 20 years, oh, well, 18 years of regular machine vision, the last one and a half have been in the deep learning and AI space. Uh, just on the surface. So believe me, when my appetite's whetted, I will, I will be uh, digging in for more. No, awesome. I think that that, that sounds good. Uh, the, the next thing we like to always ask is is about career advice. So if someone's coming into in the industrial space, the manufacturing space, would you, I guess, first, would you suggest they go take a hard look at, uh, at vision systems and potentially becoming a vision expert? Um, and then then if so, what, what, uh, what would that career advice look like, Greg? Interesting. Um, yeah, I've never seen machine vision as a, a completely singular uh, pursuit. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got the way I pursued it. I was kind of a unicorn with H and J, and then I took on every possible um, manufacturer of camera. So I was installing Keyens and Cognix and Banner and Omron and Matrox yeah. and Sense of Part. It was that breadth of product offering that kept me busy. Okay. Um, so if you want to look at it from the, I want to work with all these different cameras and I want to do it from a quality control in factory automation perspective. Yeah. Be that type of unicorn, make sure that you have more than one understanding of one camera system. It requires a lot of investment of your time. Mm -hmm. Most people don't get that. Most people are going to be working for a company and they have a problem and they're going to be either handed a vision system for solution purposes, or they need to go after a sales guy or, you know, inquire how can i solve my problems and then they're going to get introduced to it from that so again from my perspective i got into it because i really enjoyed working with hardware solving problems i always had the you know the how it's made books open in my bedroom and uh, go to maker fairs and you know hack my world kind of thing so i was always invested in problem solving and the high-tech camera nature of that just simply called to me so i think it's just got a call to the person first they got to be interested in that split between art and science, you know, creating the image is the art. It absolutely is because you're going to play with light and lens and position and target and then the science behind that. So it's a rare blend um, to 
enjoy working with camera systems because mm-hmm. then you're going to have to deal with, you know, a Cognex, maybe it's the spreadsheet environment where you want the advanced tools, or maybe it's the flowchart environment of the Keyence uh, XG type of series. So you got to have that both left brain, right brain uh, ability to just get through it all. If you're going to enjoy it, you know, there's a lot of people that just simply sit in front of a camera. It's a one-off, it's a solution. And then they move on. Uh, so everything they learned just disappeared and fell right back out because they're not going to touch that thing again for six months. But for me, it was always that constant engagement. Um, my lab here, you know, my shop has always been open to pretty much everybody. They understand it's an open door policy. There's cubicles that sit here. And so, you know, sales guys on the road have a place to hide out if they want a place to have some coffee and Wi-Fi and get some work done on the road. My lab is the same kind of thing. You know, it's just something to, to pick up and use as needed. So that's the only recommendation I have for people is to just seek those that, you know, have what you need and ask for some help, ask for a mentor in that capacity, because then they can kind of walk the rope with you and not just leave you blind. I, I think that that is great, great advice in general, uh, both the mentor and seeking other people who are walking down a, a similar path, um, almost regardless of industry and what you decide to, uh, to do to spend your time, knowing that you're not alone and hopefully being able to learn from other people's mistakes before you make the same mistake over and over again is, uh, is, is a huge positive. Um Next, next, I'd love uh, love for a book recommendation. So, uh, in the beginning, we joked that uh, that Vlad is going to go download all of these books on on Audible and and listen to them on vacation. But then he took a vacation, and only listened to like five or six. So he's got a backlog of, of more than a hundred. But we are still always looking for for more good book recommendations, uh, both personally and for the people that uh, that listen. Uh, but do you have a good book recommendation or two for us, for us, Craig? Possible, yeah. I don't uh, go in for a lot of them. Um, yep. I mean, I read for more pleasure than anything. We talked about that the other day, which is, you know, the, the, the Lord of the Rings tattoos kind of say what I enjoy in, in that sort of genre. But um, from a business perspective, the, um, the guy that I've followed the most has probably been an author by the name of Seth Godin. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's uh, a wide range of offerings from him, but, you know, things as simple as the Icarus Deception uh, is one of the ones that sticks out or the Purple Cow, just because flipping things on a different perspective and understanding that, yeah, don't fly too high and melt your wings, but don't fly too low so that you also are getting too wet and you're going to get grounded the same way. Understanding why you need to actually be who you are and let people see that. Uh, some other of his offerings, you know, the, dealing with tribes and, and understanding how to do some marketing such that people want your product and they're actually self-marketing for you because they believe you are who you are and you are who you say you are mm-hmm. uh, and you let that lead. So he's probably the one I've read the most in terms of business books behind the little red book of selling or the, you know, the spin selling books by Neil Rackham, you know, processes that I enjoy, but they're not really for good reading. They're for understanding and making your business life better. Um, so I'd say most of my reading comes more on the personal pleasure side of just wanting to disconnect and, and invest my time in a comfortable chair and some tea. Absolutely. No, I think, uh, I think, I think all of those are exceptionally valid. Uh, th- thank you for that, Greg. And then last question is, is who should, uh, who should reach out to you? Who would you like to connect with? What sort of conversations are you having? Are you, I know you said that there was the hope and goal at Universal Robotic, or I'm sorry, United uh, Robotics Group to to go and expand from like six to nearly 30 over the course of the next 12 months. Are you guys looking to hire? Uh, how can we in the community help you? Gotcha. 
Uh, yeah, as far as communications go, I'm, I'm one of those avid learners. I've got to constantly challenge myself, which is why the, the career switched to United Robotics Group. Because, um, But I engage with anybody that wants to understand the world that I live in and play in. And mm -hmm. what's kind of fun about what I do here, I, if you were able to look over my shoulder, the RC cars and the RC planes and, you know, all of my life is in what I do. I'm all in. So I, I love conversing with people that have the same kind of passion about it. Um, if there's an understanding of cameras that is lacking, if you know, I've already been approached by many different people that, hey, what can I do to make this project better? Um, certainly happy to engage there. Um, as far as what we're doing with the company, yeah, I'm not sure we're hiring right this minute. I'm only two months into the company and we just released that first product. I've got verticals that I haven't brought on board yet, but um, it's that passionate type of pursuit person that I am looking for that has industrial experience that we will be bringing online uh, with the understanding of, you know, robotics and vision uh, as kind of the primary mainstay because we're going to need to support a lot of applications. One of the reasons I have my shop here and is, it is a part of the United Robotics group is because we want to do some internal integration. We want to be able to support our customers all the way through, not just hand off a finished good, but be able to create something custom for them in the process or be able to support, you know, bring some equipment back, be able to refurbish, maintain, redeploy, um, so all of that's here from a technical perspective of just the, the double E's and the Mechies that, you know, need to have a home here. Um, those are going to be coming online in the next couple of months, I'm guessing. No. Uh, yeah. Very exciting. Uh, but, but thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. If you guys have made it this far, uh, please remember to hit the, the like button. Please remember to hit the subscribe button. If you guys are listening on podcast form, uh, you guys can rate us five stars on audible and Spotify and Apple podcasts and maybe some others. Uh, please hit that subscribe and follow. I have learned that if I ask people to subscribe and follow our podcast numbers are significantly better than when I don't ask people to subscribe and follow. So, so please do that. Please, uh, please connect with Greg, Vlad, myself um, on LinkedIn. You guys can find all of our contact information, either uh, on the live videos that you're watching or on the podcast notes below. Uh, and if you guys want, want to see more, please visit us at manufacturinghub.live in which you can see the last 84 now podcasts uh, and videos that, that we have put out. And until next Wednesday, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you Greg. Thank you.